0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I offer those similes just as a, a way to show that kind of the suttas also provide some really colorful way to describe things. For me it's like a different way to understand what's happening is um, through the visualization of the similes. And I really enjoy those ones of the five entrances and the four jhanas, because there's a sense of happiness, pleasure, joy. You know there's a really nice um, sense in them. I think uh, sometimes um, we can get caught in abstain from this refrain from that strive this way you know those that type of language whereas the similes really highlight the um, opposite of that kind of the pleasure and the joy okay so now we're going to move on to Panya wisdom for these two suttas and to just um kind of bring us back to the, um, remind us what we're talking about. So according to the story and the simile that's happening in Majjama 27, that's the elephant's footprint, that um, Palotika, who first offered the simile, he was saying that he came to the conclusion the blessed one is fully enlightened, that Dhamma is well proclaimed by the Blessed One and the Sangha is practicing the good way by just um, what others had told him, that he had seen others had ordained or something. So he's making a conclusion. And the, um, the Buddha had said, well, you need to actually know and see the bull elephant before you can come to a conclusion. And actually, um, the kind of the play on word works in Pali as well as it works in English. To come to a conclusion means two things, right? It means you come to the end as well as you have realized something, an idea, or you figured it out, or you come to the conclusion. So it's both um, meanings of those words are meant here. So in 27, that's... Um, is coming to a conclusion is by knowing and seeing. And how the, how it gets described is the Buddha says in section 26 of Madama 27, when the practitioner knows and sees thus, his mind is liberated from the taint of sensual desire, from the taint of being, and from the taint of ignorance." So what is a taint? In um, Pali, the word is asava, and it doesn't translate so well into English. Asava is flow, but asava, with the A with the bar on top, means um, in or out. It means either of them. You just have to, by context, figure it out. So a literal translation is inflow, outflow, influx effluent and some translators use that. But for us it doesn't make it's hard to understand what do they mean by what's inflowing and outflowing. So um Nanamoli used the word a taint and Picabodhi uh kept that word, but he later said that he wished he had used a little bit different word. But what is it really? It's the underlying tendency for a particular type of defilement. It's something that's really, really deep. It's not um, just uh, something, a um, momentary obsessive thought in the mind or momentary way that we are at that moment. It's something really deep. And what are they? Sensual desire. This is really deep, this uh, feeling that we want to be comfortable, that um, there's things that we want, as well as the flip side of that kind of aversion. And the second um, taint is of often translated as a being, but existence. You know, it's like an instinct. We want to exist. We want to continue either ourselves or often we want what we're experiencing to continue. Or, you know, there's just a sense of wanting things to go on the way that they are. So that's the second taint. And the third is um, ignorance. And often, there's a number of ways to interpret this, but often it's like not seeing like the Four Noble Truths, that there's a relationship between clinging and suffering. It's kind of like a, one uh, definition of ignorance. Also, perhaps there's the um, belief that things can be different or need to be different. So part of liberation here is when you know and see that your mind is liberated from these three taints. As a little aside, I'll say some suttas have four taints. It's more common to have three, sometimes there's four, and when there's four, that's a taint of view, like a, p- a particular type of views, holding on to views, things being a certain way. But that's not all that liberation is. When you know, It's not only knowing and seeing that these underlying tendencies have been uprooted, also is when it is liberated, there comes the knowledge it is liberated. So that a person knows that this has happened. It's not that it has happened, that you know that it has happened. And then understands, birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there is no more coming to any state of being. This is referring to that after death, this individual, well, if this is an arhat, um, doesn't isn't reborn at all. But to understand that, that um, I've finished. I've come to the conclusion. I've come to the end. I've finished. So, in this simile, that is how awakening enlightenment is described. Kind of the letting go of the taints and the arising of knowledge, the awareness of the knowing. So it's twofold, two things happening there. And there's a relationship between these two. Um, But before that happens, this final one, there is these, in this sutta, the penultimate knowledge that enables these two things to happen is the knowledge of the three, or the three knowledges. Now you'll remember that when I described the Brahmins that their um, sacred literature were the three Vedas. There's a relationship here. Knowledge and Veda, they're derived from the same word. In fact, you could say that a Veda is type of knowledge. So when the, Buddha in this particular sutta and in other suttas that have this the Buddhist three knowledges many people believe are specifically meant to counteract the brahmin's three knowledges, their three Vedas, what they know in their um, corpus of um, sacred literature. So um, And these three knowledges also correspond to the knowledges that the Buddha had on the night of his awakening. So, for those of you who are familiar with this story, that on the, I think it's the first watch of the night, I don't remember if that's how the story goes, but that he has the knowledge of seeing his past lives. And the second knowledge is seeing the comings and goings, the um, rebirth of beings according to their actions, karma. And then the third knowledge is the destruction of the taints. So there's a little bit of the destruction of the taints are in here twice. It's part of the third knowledge as well as um, the awareness of them is a knowledge. And these happen, these knowledges happen, the way that they're described in 27 here is, I remember we went through the jhanas, one, two, three, four, and then um, these knowledges happen. And I kind of use this analogy of the Hubble telescope when you're in the fourth jhana, where you can see things that you can't see uh, just here on Earth with a regular telescope, or a linear accelerator which helps you see subatomic particles that you can't see without with ordinary things. So some of the thinking is that it requires the fourth jhana in order to see these three knowledges. Um, I'm going to say that not all suttas describe awakening in this way, that there's three knowledges and then um, destruction of the truths and knowledge of liberation and understanding what had to be done. I should also say that um, also in there is the um, understanding the four noble truths. So there's a lot of things that happens, kind of like this awakening moment. Three knowledges, destruction of the taints, understanding the four noble truths, understanding that you are liberated, and then understanding that what had to be done had been done. This is in contrast to Manjama 95, When we look at that, it's something pretty simple, right? We have here, step number 13, after the samadhi was scrutinizing and striving, then we have realizes with the body the supreme truth. And the second is sees the truth by penetrating it with wisdom. These are really different um, explanations of what the awakening experience is like. Does anybody have an idea of why these would be different? Maybe, maybe, let me ask a question this way. For step 13, it realizes with the body, the supreme truth, Do you have an idea of why the inclusion of the body here? There's a microphone underneath you.
1: Well, it's the idea that uh, uh, our body is like a book of our entire life, and our whole mental and emotional history. And when we can learn to read that book, we... uh, can see, oh, here's where I'm stuck, here's where, I'm, uh, where I have bad patterns that cause this kind of bodily contraction or whatever, and you start to be able to let go of it. When you meditate, there's a physical aspect to the meditation, calming the mental formations, which are bodily formations as well, because there's a mind-body connection.
0: Great. So if I understood correctly, you're saying that our bodies have wisdom or there's a certain knowing there and we have to work with that as well as we practice kind of using that body. Any other ideas?
2: Uh, The way I heard it was... um Uh, sort of the same as understanding the four noble truths but in an embodied way, knowing the four noble truths rather than uh, understanding them just as a mental construct
0: So uh, uh, with the body, is this a different type of knowing? Experiencing Experiencing. the four noble
2: truths maybe would be a way to say it
0: Mm, Experiencing them. Thank you, Liz Anybody else?
3: I don't know, this is maybe outside of the um, MN95, but um, it seems like one could experience with the body all three characteristics of existence. So it might be seeing the characteristics of existence, the impermanence, the not-self, and the, the dukkha would all be, could be seen by through the body
0: nice thank you so that's uh, it's a similar idea that certain type of wisdom or experience with the body and in particular the three characteristics which we haven't talked about today and um, interesting maybe I'll ask this as a question why uh, do you think that's not included insight into the three characteristics as part of the awakening experience for those of you who've been in the kind of the dharma scene for a while that's often not always often kind of talked about as part of uh Awakening. We haven't said anything about impermanence Anitra and Nata Dukkha. Maybe indirectly, but
1: you're asking why that topic has not, not been discussed in
0: these two? Yeah, why, why haven't, if let's I don't have an answer to this. I just thought maybe uh, a, a, a s- somebody would. But um, I'm just putting that out there. This is a common you know, a- idea that we have and yet it hasn't been mentioned here.
1: There's
0: a lot of suttas. A lot of suttas. That's good enough, right? It could just very well be somewhere else. Okay, so um, I'm going to shift over now here to Majjama 27 so steps 12, 13 and 14 the first knowledge recollection of past lives the second one understands how beings are reborn according to their actions and it's very specific, it talks about actually seeing how other beings do this and the third um, is knowledge of destruction of the taints so I um just in the spirit of doing something that's um, very, um, a little bit different than what we often would do when we approach these things. I think in the West, we often have this idea of like, oh, this is true, that's not true, I believe this, I don't believe this, I like this, I don't like that. Rather, there's a certain way of that we kind of interact with these. Perfectly legitimate, we do this all the time with lots of things, right? But there's a different way in which we can approach um, these things here. And that is what role do we think that this is in here? Like, why is it there? Not as opposed to, um, I like it, I don't like it, I believe it, I don't believe it, but is there a reason whomever, I don't know who, whoever put it in here, maybe the Buddha said it, maybe the author did it, and you can consider all these different things, why is it there? Why is it included there? And then I'm gonna encourage us just to get into small groups, um, we'll break, uh, I'd to be in three groups we can count off by threes and then um, just discuss why is knowledge one in here why is knowledge two in here and why is knowledge three in there and you can look at it um, from what benefit is it for those individuals in ancient India why did it make time in this context as well as what function does it perhaps have for contemporary times you could say it doesn't, but I definitely want you to think about it in ancient India and then also think about it in contemporary times. So can we count off for three, and maybe we'll start with you in the back one. Three. 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 one. Two. Three. one. Two. <laughs> so I have a handout here that has the details of what each knowledge is. I mean um, the exact text, more than just a little bullet point here, and um, just one one that has all three. So we could have group one here, and you guys can talk about what function does this first knowledge in there. Group two here, and um, group three for the third knowledge. I'll put this came up. Thank you, Joe. So. I, as I mentioned, I offer that as an exercise as a different way to kind of approach things um recognizing that in the contemporary West, these ideas of rebirth or seeing beings uh reborn according to their karma may not be something that we naturally think about or believe in, which is okay right there's no, we don't have to, but I think it is useful to think about well, why is it in there was it the was there a particular function? So, would anybody from group one like to talk about um, an idea of why the first knowledge, recollection of past lives, is included as part of the awakening experience?
2: Okay. Yay!
4: Okay. Is this on? Yes. Okay. Um, I think one of the reasons that it could be in there, um, and the application especially to Indians, for example, of that time, was the contrast from the way the Brahmins handled the Vedas. It was very different for people who didn't even conceive that their own experience mattered, that they were to just take as as law what had been passed down to the Vedas, like the 16-year-old that was talking to the Buddha and just said, well, that's what my teacher said, that's what I've been taught, that's what's been passed on. But that, and the Buddha has said, I believe, always that it... It wasn't just him who could do this that could be the realized or an enlightened one. It was intended for everyone. And so if you start to experience things on your own and put value on that experience, eventually things like realizing what happened in your past lives, that you've been involving, that things that you are changing because of the, the teachings, that it was meaningful. And so you look to what is happening with yourself and not just read the life of the enlightened one.
0: I see. So if I understood correctly, part of it was by seeing that you see uh, impermanence, things change. The way that you were in a former life is not how the way things are now. And also that um, there's a certain amount of agency or there's value in doing things a certain way. Did I, did I understand yes. correctly? So it's so much more elegant. <laughs> no, I don't know about that, but thank you. That's great. I love that. Anybody else? Even if you weren't in group one, do you have an idea? Like, why, why is this recollection of past lives part of the awakening experience as in the sutta? Okay, maybe we'll go to group number two. For recollection, or I don't don't remember if the word is recollection, but to seeing how beings arise and pass away according to their actions. Does anybody have an idea of why Why is that included as part of the awakening experience?
3: Well, I was in that group. Yes. And um, I I don't know that it was really based on what we read here, but that at the time in India, I mean, the idea of, of being, of rebirth was prevalent, but that often, I mean, there were many different views and opinions about how that all worked, but some of them were that it was just kind of the luck of the draw. You know, like you were just, you know, there were some cosmic dice being thrown and you got born as a Brahmin or you got born as a, a Dalit or an untouchable or whatever and um maybe there were some gods or something that you could pray to or you you know there's some ritual you could do that might help but that it was but your your actions themselves didn't matter and so this to me this was really about how you conduct yourself and what path you take you know like if, well, i can't remember the name of that city that you were talking about that the path leads to Rajagaha. Yeah, I mean, if um, if you set your sight on going to Rajagaza, that there's um, uh, it'll lead to more um, wholesome, uh, more wholesome experience than if you just either take the first road that you find or go to the one that leads to the. Uh, City of casinos or something. <laughs>
0: Las Vegas. Las Vegas or something.
3: <laughs> so, um, yeah, that. I guess for me also, there's, there's kind of a notion that, like, you know, there's they, people used to wear these t shirts that said, He who dies with the most toys wins. You know, that, that sense of, well, as long as you did okay up until your last, the last breath of this body, that's all that really mattered. And this really kind of points at, you know, there's something that perpetuates over time based on what we're doing. And so there's a value to um, choosing what we do wisely.
0: So uh, let's see if I understood a number of ways. It's because maybe it was a pedagogical tool to have this. Maybe it was just a way of teaching, say, look that uh, the wise people, the awakened people, see that that um, actions do have an effect. Because uh, Jim is right, in ancient India at this time, there were some um, these philosophers, Salmanas, who did say, it doesn't matter what you do, it's already preordained. It doesn't matter, don't bother uh, trying to be ethical. So that's one, is that, okay, if these wise people are seeing this. And then another one is maybe as uh, experiential to see that, oh, yes, my myself, my actions have uh, consequences. Is this accurate, Jim? Anybody else have an idea of why why has this been preserved for thousands of years? Lots and lots of people have been re- reading this as an important part of the awakening experience.
4: Also, see it with the divine eye clearly so that you can actually cut through it and stop the cycle.
0: Yes. So something that she said, If those of you who read um, Jew, it is the um, divine eye. Which is different than the Dharma eye, but the divine eye, which is that surpasses the human. I don't know what that means exactly, but to see clearly. Yes. Phil? Eileen, can you there we go. I Eileen, mean, sorry.
1: Well, I think I'm restating some of what's been said, but when you can see this clearly, um, cause of rebirth and how it happens, it just sharpens your awareness of cause and cause and effect. Helps you to apply it to yourself.
0: Yeah. This helps you see cause and effect. Does anybody else have an idea of why this is included as part of the awakening experience? Okay, what about the third? Oh, Tracy, did you want to say something? Um, It's kind of a
5: half-formed thought, um, but it kind of seems like um, because people start to... uh, start to abandon the hindrances and um, abide in the jhanas and then they can like, see these things um, but they haven't yet destroyed all the taints so they're going to be like still doing bad, doing things that cause suffering um, and it, I guess it's interesting, just the way it's written is interesting because it sort of shows how um, you could watch, you could see how those beings um, Pass away and reappear um, But there's a sense of, of Watching it rather than Suffering with those So that you could be going through um, These uh, states of Deprivation, bad destinations And perdition even in hell But still uh, Be with the divine eye Whatever, whatever it is <laughs>
0: Nice. No, she, uh, Tracy, you bring up, uh, this wasn't your main point, but I, you brought up something that I think is worthwhile saying, is that how much time is happening between these? Is this all like, okay, we just have these realizations one after another, or do you have one and then... A year later, you have a second one, or I think generally the thinking is that they happen pretty close together. That's they're in sequence. Like once you start on this path of awakening, once you have this first knowledge, you're going to finish with um, all of them. But I don't. That's my understanding. I don't know if that's um, how it's true. I mean, or how it's portrayed in all of the suttas. And then, uh, what about this third one? Maybe this one's a little bit easier. Third knowledge. To see as it really is, the destruction of the taints. And I called it the Four Noble Truths. Um, I'll just put as a tiny little aside, they're not called the Four Noble Truths exactly, right? We recognize them truth of suffering, origin, cessation, path leading to the cessation. But um, I'll just say that, that there are places in the um, suttas. I'm sensitized because this is Gil's kind of little new idea. I shouldn't, uh, in a way that he's like really investigating, which I think he's very interesting. Is is there a difference? These four statements, these four suffering statements, and the four noble truths. They may have the same meanings, but the expression four noble truths" gets used in a certain place where these four statements aren't used. If you look at the whole suttas. so it's um, it's a subtle difference. And so for our purposes, maybe we don't need to worry about it, but insight into the Four Noble Truths and destruction of the taints is the third knowledge. Let's, we can leave it at that. Why is that part of these knowledges? Bill.
1: So to restate the three taints, tell me if I got it right, craving for sensual pleasure, craving for being, and ignorance,
0: See, let's see it
1: cravingava
0: which is, would be um yes sensual pleasure mm-hmm. bhavasana, which is like existence or being and then avidana yeah ignorance ignorance yes
1: yeah. so uh, you know, the first two were craving and uh, so we can see. Craving, leaning forward, there's some heat in that craving. It is synonymous with suffering. Um, central pleasure, there's just no end to craving for central pleasure. I mean, even if we get it, then we want more of it. And again, and and so... We can never really be satisfied if that's our aim and craving for being. Uh, I got elected to be the spokesperson because I illustrated that with a song, you know, which you've all heard. Elected unfairly, but uh, you know, I gotta be me. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then, and then, put Isn't some emphasis on. I gotta be me. <laughs> <laughs> you see, the you it. see this. St- suffering in that.
0: (laughs) Thank you,
1: Bill. (laughs) And then maybe ignorance is that you don't even realize that these things are suffering. It's Mm. just so embedded in our culture. Of course we want central pleasure. Of course we want to magnify our sense of self, be recognized, get credit, be loved. Uh, Our whole culture revolves around these things we don't even see how uh, that is synonymous with suffering so that's ignorance and uh, so we can't make any real progress on this path if we have so much ignorance if we're imbued um, you know if that pervades us we didn't really get to the next two parts but I I think it's almost self-evident how part two, he understands this is suffering, this is the origin of suffering, uh, directly follows from that first statement regarding destruction of the taints. Um, that's, That's as far as we got.
0: I think that uh, Bill brings up a good point that uh, desire is a big part of those chains, right? Desire for being, desire for essential pleasure, and then ignorance. And... um and these are tied in two different two different ways into kind of the Buddhist uh, story. One is, right, the Four Noble Truths, the Second Noble Truth is Tanha, which is a little bit different, but it's definitely related, this um, clinging or creating, is the origin of suffering. If awakening is going to be an end of suffering, then we need to get rid of those things that are fueling suffering. So the destruction of those first two taints: Ignorance... If we believe in dependent origination, those we're not going to teach about it today, but if you know that um, dependent origination starts with ignorance, ends with suffering, so in these ways that um, uh, clinging or grasping leads to suffering through the four noble truths, ignorance leads to suffering through dependent origination, and awakening needs to get rid of both of these things. So, hence the destruction of the taints. So that's um, one way that often the, a, perhaps a dharma teacher would talk about it. But I'll um, offer up some. What have some scholars said? Some of them more dharma teacher-like, and some of them more um, academic-like. Oh, let's see here. So, um, so there have been some, some persons say that well, this is in the um, happened to the Buddha. And he was an extraordinary being, wasn't an ordinary person. But this was his experience to see these three knowledges. So he just talks about it um, when he describes a path of practice because that was his own experience. And we see that too, right? Dharma teachers today talk from their own experience. So maybe it's not something that other people will um, have occur. It happened happen to him. Second explanation. This is the truth. This is what happens. And if you get in the fourth jhana and really, really, really practice with the fourth jhana and cultivate this, you will have this experience as well. That's the second interpretation. The third was, well, this three knowledges, that's just to counteract the three Vedas that we talked about um, earlier. And then um, there's one particular sutta, it's in the Anguttara Nikaya, where this is very explicit, where the Buddha says this that there's three knowledges, go to three Vedas. And then somehow this passage got picked up out of that sutta and just plopped in a bunch of other suttas. And we see that happen a lot. There's a lot of stock passages in these suttas They're called pericopes, where it, just gets, it originates in one place and maybe in that context it makes sense, but then it gets moved to other places and it doesn't make sense in that other context. Here's a fourth interpretation. It's not really supposed to be there. The, um, the Chinese version, like it's... A, of this sutta so that was, um, has been translated into Chinese and now we're translating it back into English and, but it didn't go from just, I want to is, I'll just say this, the Chinese version is a little bit different and it does include these three knowledges you go straight from the fourth jhana straight to a destruction of the taints and the four noble truths you don't need these uh, three, no, three knowledges uh, one, two, three, four, five. Here's this uh, sixth interpretation. In the second at first acknowledges, you see all the suffering. You see the suffering. When you see your past lives, you say, "Oh, I was rich, I was beautiful, I was generous, and yet I still had suffering. I was had this perfect marriage, I had beautiful children, whatever. you know, all of these past lives, you see that it doesn't matter what you have, what you do, there's still suffering. And in the second knowledge, the same thing. You see, oh, not only me, but everybody else, they have so much suffering. And look what they're doing. That Sometimes they end up in a bad destination and sometimes in a good destination. And then after you see all that suffering, then you let go. And that's why the third knowledge is a destruction of the taints. And I'm seeing to the Four Noble Truths. Here's the seventh uh, interpretation, right? I'm just offering this. There's lots of ways to hold this. Um, This is a a scholar who has looked at the suttas, and this um, individual is a practitioner, and said, why isn't there more information in there about meditation, like insight meditation? We have the Satipatthana Sutta, but if this insight meditation is really what it's all about, there should be more in the suttas about it. So he um, thinks that maybe there was a tradition that didn't get captured in the suttas, just like I have this story of maybe there's women practitioners that didn't get captured. He has the same story that they were these adept meditators who didn't, their stories are not in the suttas. And he says that actually these knowledges, they're just metaphors. The first knowledge is a metaphor for the Ability to retrace your thought stream. That's a certain type of capability of insight meditation. Being able to see, like, oh, I have this thought because the one before was this, the one before that was this, one before that. To kind of see the, um, just retrace backwards. The metaphor is past lives. The second knowledge is um, the insight capability to be able to observe their relationships between thought elements. Like, oh, I'm having this thought now and it's connected to that one and I probably am going to have that one in the future and it's connected here. You know, just to see the web of our experience. So the second knowledge is a metaphor for that, is when you have this uh, meditative capability, you can see this web of interactions. And then the third knowledge is a metaphor to um, kind of dispassionately observe events as they unfold. You see suffering, you see the end of suffering, you see the uh, the path leading to the cessation of suffering. So, But it's something that you're seeing or a knowledge that arises. You're not in the middle of it. Something that, um, and then destruction of the taints, you see these things going away, but you're not, just like in meditation, perhaps, you can see things dispassionately. Yes, Liz.
2: So that brings up a question. Um, is there, when you study poly, is there any other possible translation of what's translated as lives and reborn?
0: Well, this is a very interesting thing. So, um, the word for birth is jati, but it's also used to mean um, one's um, clan. Kind of, you know, your clan name. So, how beings are reborn, it could be like how you end up in a group or how you end up in a clan or something like this. The same could be said um, for step number 17, birth is destroyed it's a form of the word jati as well so you could say maybe it's not birth that's destroyed it's that you're no longer a part of the clan that you used to belong to now you're an arhat now you are beyond clans or something like that so maybe yes we could play around with the poly and come up with uh, different interpretations Okay, so I think that um, we'll take a break now. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about another sutta that's different. But um, I kind of like it. I, um, I know Gil has taught it recently here. He taught it at IRC. He taught it at Spirit Rock. Kim told me that Andrea just taught it last week. So it's like the new fashionable sutta. So um, we'll talk about that after the break. Okay. So here we are in the final stretch. Am I amplified? Yeah, here we are. Now I am. Okay. Majjama 7, the Vatupama Sutta, simile of the cloth. So the context of this is it just opens with um, the Buddha giving a talk to um, uh, the monks. And it's... um, he just jumps right in with the simile of the cloth. And he says that an undefiled mind is like a pure cloth that takes die well and leads to a happy destination. And then, of course, a defiled mind is um, does not take die well and does not lead to a happy destination. And then an interesting thing about this is that um, he doesn't um, talk about Sila actually in the beginning when he talks about this path maybe I should back up a little bit and say not everybody would agree that this is a very clear path unlike the, the uh, Majima 27 and 95 it's a very clearly a path here um, We—it's not as clear in terms of there isn't language of in order to get here you must do that. We're just uh, figuring it out by what's put in the sutta. So there's a number of ways we can interpret this sutta. So in the beginning, there—if we're um, to look at uh, these preconditions, faith or a teacher or dharma—that isn't included here, and actually. Sila isn't included in the beginning either. The little, um, it's section 20, if you look there for number one. It's actually at the end. And what happens is the Buddha gives this simile about that cloth, and he gives a teaching about the path of practice, and then nearby there is sitting a Brahmin that says, well, why are you bothering with all this work? Why don't you just... Bathe in the uh, river this do this ritual cleansing that's so much easier to do you don't have to bother with um all this work, and the Buddha responds to him in verse, and that's at the end and I'm putting that here as under Siva as how it's given to a response to somebody saying. Essentially, you can do whatever you want as long as you jump in the river and cleanse yourself. And the Buddha, and here's an excerpt of a verse. Um, a fool may there forever bathe, yet will not purify dark deeds. And if you speak no falsehood, nor work harm for living beings, nor take what is offered not, with faith and free from avarice, What need for you to go to gaya to wash away your evil actions? So that definitely gives us a sense of sila, right? We see things of not harming, um, not taking what's not offered, free from greed. And with faith, maybe the preconditions. So it's an abbreviated poetic form of sila. But what's really interesting about this sutta is how samadhi, is described. It's really different, and it's something that we haven't seen in the other two before. So step number two, abandons these 16 imperfections of the mind, or 16 blemishes. This may be right analogous, earlier we saw the five hindrances. These can be similar, and I put them in a footnote, this long list of these 16 things. One thing that um, scholars have looked at when they look at this list of 16 is that most of these, I think maybe even all of them, have to do with our relationships to other people or kind of our societal concerns. So there seems to be a, um, an emphasis here of putting away those things in your mind that um, don't support relationships or society. That's one interpretation. And then after you can do that, this list is long, right? It includes greed, ill-will, um, deceit and fraud, arrogance, conceit. It's not easy to abandon these imperfections. So it's a, a, quite an accomplishment. That's why step number three is acquires unwavering confidence in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. This is a little bit different than faith. They're related, but it's a little bit different. And um, a technicality would be that this unwavering confidence. You can't have that until you have some degree of freedom, some degree of awakening, some taste of uh, a purity of mind or an awakening. So a hint of it. It's only when that, then you can have unwavering confidence. And then number four, this is a little bit my interpretation, um, that is to practice recollections of the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha. That's not the exact words, to practice recollections. It is... um, He considers thus... I am possessed of unwavering confidence in the Dharma, or unwavering confidence in the Buddha. And he gains inspiration in the meaning, which I think I put as goal too, yes, I'll talk about that in a moment, gains inspiration in the Dharma, gains gladness connected with the Dharma. When he is glad, rapture is born in him. In one who is rapturous, the body becomes tranquil, one whose body is tranquil feels pleasure. In one who feels pleasure, the mind becomes concentrated. So, from what we saw earlier, that sounds like abandoning the five hindrances and getting into the jhanas. We see this um, pleasure and rapture, tranquility, concentration, it kind of feels like a um, jhanas. But I was saying practices recollections. Because after that is this word. He considers thus something about the Buddha, and then considers something about the Dharma, and considers something about the Sangha, and then considers all of them together. So that could be a type of recollections. You know, this is a practice we don't um, teach about it so much here. It's kind of in this scene in this contemporary times, but to recollect. Um, there's six recollections, right? As a practice. Does anybody know what all six are? Yes, so there's a a practice, it's a type of meditation practice, it's um, of recollections, and there's six recollections, so six things that you recollect. One is the Buddha, one is the Dharma, one is the Sangha, and I don't remember the other three... Oh, yes, the last one is about devas. Thank you. This is sixth, and I don't remember what four and five are. Devas, we could Google it, right? It's not as important that we know exactly what it is. The point is, it's a different type of meditation, it's not mindfulness. It's not concentration it's a bringing to mind the beautiful qualities of the Buddha and feeling inspired and this kind of feeling inspired feeling motivated kind of um, is calming and it maybe helps push away doubt helps push away yeah I think you're right maybe I think you're Chris yes good deeds I think is also one of the recollections like I regret that I don't remember this. So this is a different type of meditation, is the main point that I want to say here. And then number five, gains inspiration in the meaning. And um, just as Liz was asking me about uh, different English words that can go with Pali words, this is a Pali word, Atta, which means both meaning and means goal. And Bhikkhu uses the word meaning, but I kind of like the word Goal that um, maybe if you're thinking about the Buddha, you're recollecting the Buddha, you feel inspired about, yes, I too can be awakened, or awakening is possible. Or maybe if you think of, you know, recollections of the Dhamma, Sangha, your good deeds, or the Devas, the Devas are disembodied entities. Um, we can think of them as like angels but they are just like humans in that they have their own karma. They um, are um, not necessarily have awakening or they're more, we can think of them as just like humans who just happen to not have bodies. That's the way I'm holding them right now. Yes. Number four and five are recollection of generosity and virtue. Oh, thank you. So, Jim, uh, four is... Generosity and five is recollection of virtue, and six was the Davis: Yes, Yes, okay, thank you, Chris. You helped us with that and Jim <laughs> okay, so that's um, so after this doing this recollection practice, feel inspired, and then with inspiration, you feel gladness, and then a rapture, which is remember. Um, That was in the simile of the jhanas, that there's a rapture. And the body becomes tranquil. We see that also, tranquility is one of the seven factors of awakening. And it also is uh, just kind of a sense of, you know, getting concentrated. Becomes concentrated. And then, for me, this is what's really interesting. Next is to do the Brahma-viharas practice those of you who aren't familiar with this, in the suttas, Brahma-Vahara practice is different than what is often taught on retreat. What's often taught on retreat comes out of the Vasudhimagga, which is the commentaries. In the suttas, Brahma-Vahara's practice is just like this. Pervade one quarter with a mind imbued with loving-kindness. It doesn't say exactly how to imbue your heart with loving-kindness. It doesn't have the phrases... Necessarily, we could poke them, pull them out of a particular sutta if we wanted. And there wasn't this idea, you know, um, for yourself and others. It's not quite as, uh, um, what's the word, like schematized. not so much so schematic in the suttas. It's more often like this imbue the mind one quarter with loving kindness. He abides pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving kindness. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. So above, below, around and everywhere and to all as to himself, he abides pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. So that's the second type of meditation practice after the recollections, is to do this with loving kindness. And then um, the same thing with compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. It's a... um, more a quality of the heart mind. If we don't want to make a difference between the heart and the mind, it's more, you know, I don't know if I need to explain it. Perhaps we all know this feeling of goodwill towards everybody without exception. Maybe that's what I should say. Without exception. That's what makes this a particular thing. Rather than just trying to be friendly, it's all encompassing. And then on the second page, there's an awakening. If we go to Panya, you this wisdom. Now, the awakening is a little bit different than what we saw in 27 and 95. He understands thus. There's this. There's the inferior. There's the superior. There is an escape. Does this look like anything? Does this call to mind anything? Does this feel familiar about anything?
2: It sounds a little bit to me like the um, mundane, the supra-mundane and the liberation.
0: Oh, nice. Nice way to think about it. Yes.
6: It also seems like the Four Noble Truths.
0: Yes. Yes. Right? There is suffering. The inferior is the origin. The superior is letting go, cessation, and the escape is a path leading to the cessation. So a lot of scholars and later Buddhists say, oh, this is like a this is a version of the Four Noble Truths. And so we saw that right in 27 as part of the awakening experience. And then His mind is liberated from the taints, just like we saw before. Comes the knowledge, it is liberated, and understands. Birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there is no more coming into the state of being. So there's a number of reasons why this um, sutta is interesting, but... The main reason why I wanted to look at this briefly today is for this samadhi section. We don't see the mindfulness practices, we don't see the concentration practices, we don't see, what is it, zeal, will, striving, scrutinizing that we saw in other ones. We see recollection of the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, and we see a Brahma, Vihara practice, and and that leading to liberation. So with that, I've kind of finished with my um, discussion of this with the three different suttas. And um, I wonder if sometimes this is a fun thing to do. You don't have to participate. But sometimes it's fun to say, to think about, okay, if somebody's going to ask you, okay, well, you just spent all those hours at IMC. What did you learn? What, what's, what happened? And I like to think of this as an elevator speech. You know, two sentences, one sentence, three sentences... Ten seconds. What, what is kind of a thing that you are taking away from today? What is kind of an elevator speech if somebody is going to um, ask you? That could be one way to approach it. A second is, what is something that you feel energy around in the sense that you feel touched by, troubled by, inspired by, or is something that you learned today? So I would just encourage you either to offer an elevator speech, kind of a generic, what what did we talk about today? Or the second, what do you have energy around today? Just as a way to kind of cap what we've done. Bill, thank you. And maybe if, I just encourage those individuals who haven't spoken... It's okay. You don't have to. But uh, I encourage you. I welcome you. You, you, No pressure. but.
1: Uh, Well, this last part was uh, maybe especially good for me. Um, Those two different kinds of meditation practice. um, Practice the recollections. And then the... uh, Also the four Brahma Paharas... Might be a welcome alternative to my usual sit on the cushion, try to follow the breath, fail, try again, over. So, I mean, it's good to keep making that effort, but uh, that can get stale too and lead to discouragement. If I just did these other two once in a while, that would be a um, a nice mix.
0: Yes, uh, Bill, I really appreciated your body language when you were saying that, kind of like, oh, I'm going to do this. But then when you started to talk about the other ones, you kind of sat up straight. So that, I think, is great.
1: Well, I didn't notice, so I'm glad you did.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think I said a lot, actually. Somebody has to have something.
4: I I just enjoyed the context, that you put it into context, and and then zeroing in and pulling back out. I really appreciated that.
0: Yes, thank you, Eileen.
6: There's a couple of things I think that you, um, similar to what, I don't know if this is what you meant by context, Eileen, but... um, just reminding us to remember, sometimes the suttas feel so um, scattered. You know, it's like, but you said this there, and I don't know how these really, you know, but it was really lovely sort of that you put the context of the sutta right up front. Remember who he's talking to, what the motivations for that particular discourse might be, what the perspective of the person he's talking to might have been, what gaps he was trying to fill in. So these things might have been implicit here, but they may need to be made explicit there. That was really nice just to sort of remember that there, these are actual conversations or supposedly actual conversations. And there's a whole lot of context mm-hmm. that, um, that is kind of filtered out from those that we may not know. And so rather than taking them literally just sort of starting to think a little bit more broadly about whether, uh, what other kind of information may be informing what we're seeing on the page. That was one thing. And the other one was to um, then bring our own perspective into it and sort of question, question that. Because a lot of times I think when I read these things, I don't trust myself to be able to get enough meaning out of them. And so to be able to just sort of look at it and explore and ask ourselves the questions and trust those I think is very helpful
0: yes, thank you yes, thank you for saying that that was kind of a key thing that I wanted to talk about today was the context That you know, these teachings are happening in context not all suttas have as much story around them as these do but um, that's been my own experience is that I can understand things better when I understand the bigger picture in which they're occurring and that there's also danger there could be some wisdom as well but to take them out of context just to keep that in mind
5: I really appreciated uh, I guess this is a little bit like what you're just saying, but um uh, like I, I feel I've heard a lot of Dharma talks, and usually it's like it's what you're talking about like there's a, a quote and then it's um and then a lot of discussion about it and I just really appreciate which I love um, uh, but I really appreciated going through so much like I can't believe how much we got to learn about um. In this one day, and the way that you were so so that we were clearly guided through that, and that also um, you were so clear about where you were um, bringing in your own perspective and, you're, and really pointing to that, and I appreciated both the guiding through of what um, what 's there and then, and I appreciate your perspective all too mm. so Thank you Thank you, Tracy.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, for me it's important to say, you know, what is my interpretation and what's really here? Because you may, after this, I mean, I encourage you not to go look at the suttas, right? These are just bullet points and numbers and tables. Go back and read the whole sentences and you may go, what? Really? <laughs> she said that? Got that from here? Right? <laughs> <laughs> Right? And that will be kind of a fun thing to say, like, oh, I actually have my own idea about this. Right? And that's good. Right? Because part of um, Majima 95, right, it was to investigate and examine the Dhamma. Right? So this is a way to do it. Like, okay, now I've maybe given you a tool, something that you're curious about, and go back and find for yourself. Well, m- maybe I'll end with saying what a, a delight this was for me. It was uh, fun and it was a pleasure to share this with you all. And I'd like to offer the merit of any benefit that we receive from our practice today. May it be for the welfare and being well-being, well-being and welfare for all beings everywhere. Thank you.